are some learning objectives. They're in your handout. I've got two, three, two free things for you. One is at drwalt.com, I work as a medical journalist some. So I review the literature, medical literature, and then report to regular healthcare professionals about medical news you can use. And it's at drwalt.com. If you, if you click on it, then it's one or two topics of the day. And you can get it by email or whatever. If you like the, the topic, you can click on it and read it. If you don't, dump it. So uh, anyway, two news stories a day at drwalt.com. The second thing I, I'm really most excited about is a <clears throat> devotion I've been working on for 15 years. And if you just go to drwalt.com, click on the devotionals, and Morning Glory, Evening Grace comes up. It's a free devotional. You can sign up for it by email notification or Twitter or Facebook. I don't know how those work, but they say you can get them that way. <clears throat> and what it is, I, I'm kind of tired of devotionals that tell me what people think about God. And I decided to do a devotional that tells you what God thinks about God. It's just God's word. Just God's word about particular topics. So this one's about God believes life begins at conception. So it's all the verses that, that do that. And I tried to string them in a, in a way that's like a pearl necklace to give you each day some short readings from God's word. Morning glory, evening grace. You're welcome to it. <clears throat> no charge at all. And then I, I'm, I'm announcing today that, or yesterday, that CMDA's new Grace Prescriptions course for health professionals on how to bring your faith to work with you just was released this week. It's a small group curriculum for healthcare professionals of every stripe. <clears throat> and some of the information I'll be giving you this morning comes from one of those sessions and how to use a, a spiritual history. Everything, everything I'm telling you, I, I give, <clears throat> most everything I'm telling you, I give in the academic presentations I do at medical schools and medical centers and residencies around the country, an academic presentation on the purpose of a spiritual history. This is on the website. You're welcome to take this, adapt it, steal it, modify it, publish it, take credit for it. It's, it's just stuff from the literature. Um, so the purpose of a spiritual history, according to Hal Koenig, a research psychiatrist at Duke, is to learn several things. The patient's religious background, the role that religion or spiritual, religious or spiritual beliefs or practices play in coping. And this is the new information that I, I, want, you, I want you to center on, is how religious beliefs can cause distress and affect mortality and morbidity. And then beliefs that may influence or conflict with decisions about medical care. Jehovah's Witness. Do you think there's a surgeon that would want to operate on Jehovah's Witness and not know it? Even surgeons understand this. This is not something. I apologize to my surgical <coughs> colleagues. The patient's level of participation in a spiritual community, whether that community is supportive or, or not, and then any spiritual needs there may have. Research in Chicago shows that the average believer, and I'm talking about religious believer of, of any stripe, has an average of three religious needs during their hospitalization that are not met. And this is for inpatient med-surg patients. <clears throat> Most health professionals understand the relationship between physical and mental health and spiritual health. And most health professionals understand it's important. But most of us don't ask anything about it. And why is it? Why do we think that it's important, but it's not something we do? We're often reluctant to explore spiritual issues with patients, and we're often <clears throat> uh, uh, either don't have discussions with patients or don't refer 
to, to chaplains. And why is it? According to a, a study done of primary care providers in Missouri, <clears throat> lack of time. A lot of us have the impression, the delusion, the fixed false belief that this is going to take a lot of time to do. And, and I'm going to show you how you can do it real quickly. If I can do an hour talk in half an hour, you can do spiritual history very, <clears throat> very quickly. Lack of experience or training. 60% of us say, I don't know how to do it. Nobody ever showed me how to do it. I'm not going to do something I hadn't seen or hadn't been told to do. Then uncertainty. Now, when they did the pilot study, this is really cool. Those of you that do research know we, if we research surveys, you know, we'll, we'll pilot them to see if we need to change anything. When they piloted this, they asked the physicians, are you afraid to take a spiritual history? And they said, no, I'm not afraid. And they said, are you cert- uncertain? Yeah, 60% of them said, well, yeah, I'm uncertain, but I'm not afraid. <clears throat> How to identify patients desiring a, a spiritual discussion? 56% were concerned about that. What do I, how do I manage this stuff? You know, like the four worst words in medicine? Oh, by the way, right? You're getting ready to. <clears throat> so do I even want to go there if something's going to come up? And then what about my attending? Or, or what about my colleagues? Or what about the patient's family? Or what about the chaplains? Or, you know, what are, what are colleagues and patients going going to say over half of them were concerned about that. And indeed, I want you to know that there's significant academic opposition to taking spiritual histories. And if you look at the literature, at least at the beginning of of a decade ago, you can find editorials denouncing you guys taking spiritual assessments in Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, Archives of Maternal Medicine, American Family Physician, and Annals of Behavioral Medicine. I mean, some of the most distributed and respected journals in the world. Big deal, right? Until you look at one little thread between these articles. It's the authors. They're all the same. They're the only ones who publish this. And in fact, if you happen to be a liberal news rag and you want to talk about faith and healing, guess who you invite to talk about it? It's these same folks. And so in 2009, Time, Time Magazine did an article on this, and Alice Park, who's a good, a good journalist, I like her work, she says, what role does religion play in health and health and religion? And, and Richard Sloan, a, 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 psychi- a psychologist at Columbia, said, well, spirituality and religion play a substantial role in helping patients overcome discomfort. Good, fair. That's an evidence-based comment. But, he says, I don't think it's any business of medicine. I don't think it's the doctor's job to be involved in that, other than to refer to a professional. Um, You all are not professionals. (laughs) So so you should refer to a professional. So, Alice says, "So, so doctors should not be taking spiritual histories, like the entire medical literature of the world says, except your articles. And he says... No, I don't think they should be taking spiritual histories. Fair, honest statement. I don't think, because he cannot say, the evidence says you shouldn't. That will be quoted to you. So he wrote a book called Blind Faith about this unholy reliance of religion and medicine. Of course, what does he think religion is? Kind of maybe picking on one here. And then out comes the second edition 
of the Oxford University Press's Handbook of Religion and Health, and they comment about some of the world's critics of us bringing faith into medicine. And speaking of Dr. Sloan, this book says, quote, Sloan has become the world's most vocal critic of the religion-health relationship. And in blind faith, cynically and caustically elaborates his one-sided extremist views that are not evidence-based. If you want to depend upon the literature, you will bring a spiritual assessment into clinical care. And if you want to go with the evidence-based literature, you can't not. And I'm going to show you why. <clears throat> the first time I addressed this in the medical literature was a review article for Annals of Behavioral Medicine. Gosh, it's 12 years old now. And there's never been anything else broader published on this, because there's not been much in the literature significantly different, except what I'm going to show you today about this. We gave a whole bunch of reasons, evidence-based reasons, for <clears throat> for incorporating your faith into your professions. But I want to just go through four of them today. We concluded our article saying this, the current evidence would encourage interested physicians, healthcare providers, and healthcare systems to learn to assess their patient's spiritual health and to provide indicated and desired spiritual intervention. So, number one, it meets the desire of most of your patients. Number two, it will enhance your relationship with your patients. Number three, it meets the latest standards for quality care and is now considered a core competency of healthcare across the healthcare professions. And then number four, it helps identify any religious <clears throat> struggle. So it meets the desire of the patients. <clears throat> Just a few, few quotes from literature. When 70% of the, with 70% of the population who view religious commitment as a central life factor, treatment approaches devoid of spiritual sensitivity may provide an alien values framework. First book I did for CMDA was the Alternative Medicine Handbook. Donald Omatuna and I, who don't sell the stuff, we don't have a dog in the fight, we just did an evidence-based book for CMDA on alternative medicine. And when we were looking at the literature for reasons that people choose alternative medicine, one of the top reasons that really shocked us was because traditional medicine ignores the spirituality of patients. And when they look for practitioners who are willing to honor their spirituality, where do they go? outside of traditional medicine to alternative medicine. <clears throat> so Albergen goes on to say, a majority of the population probably prefers an orientation that is sympathetic or at least sensitive to a spiritual perspective. Now, this was in 1990, and his hypothesis was the vast majority of people probably wouldn't mind this. We now have data showing the vast majority not only don't mind it, but they censor you and me for not bringing our faith to work, or at least not recognizing theirs. Hatch writes, generally the public appears to view, this is eight years later now, now we've got data, and he says the public appears to view and value spirituality as a central factor of life, especially when they're facing illness. Now, illness doesn't necessarily mean illness. This could be they got a, a dental pain, and they're going to go see you as a dental professional. That's illness to them. And when they face these things, they begin to think about eternal things even something very minor to you. This week we had a whole bunch of people in our office who had little minor GI bug that was going around Colorado Springs. But they thought they had Ebola. <laughs> this is a big deal for them. They begin to think about eternal things. I was rounding with the residents, and we were going by the ICU, and the chief resident, one of the chiefs said, uh, said, well, you don't need to see this patient. He's recovering from MRSA sepsis, and um, he's going to be out of the ICU today. He's doing great. He's off dialysis, off the ventilator. 
And I said, um, Alex, I'd really like to see him. There may be a case report here. Because in his spiritual history, it said he was an atheist. But Alex said, I was talking about mercy. He said, Dr. Laramore, I said, I know you come from a little city. And you probably don't see much MRSA, but we really see a lot. And there's really not a case report here. And I said, well, no, 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 it's not the MRSA. It's, it's an atheist. He's in ICU. I've only practiced medicine 32 years, but I've never seen one. And I'm under, so I we went in and introduced myself to him, and I said, hey, the residents having your spiritual history here, um, that you're an atheist, I just have a question for you. Have you thought of God any time during your hospitalization? He said, thought of him? I talk to him every day. <laughs> and I said, shucks. <laughs> I mean, I mean it, was, it, was, it was good, but I, didn't, I anyway, still haven't had one to report. So especially when they're facing illness, they desire health professionals to inquire about beliefs that are important to them. They don't desire you to push your beliefs on them unwelcomed or requested without permission, respect, and sensitivity. But they're very interested in you asking about theirs. <clears throat> so now we fast forward to 2003. The majority of patients would not be offended by a gentle, open inquiry about their spiritual beliefs. Many patients want their spiritual needs addressed either directly or by referral. And then just a couple of years ago, we saw this in the literature. The ability to identify and address patient spiritual needs has become an important clinical competency. It's not just that you'd like to do it. It's now a core competency of clinical care. Studies have shown that up to 90% of patients want physicians to address their spiritual needs. Many patients want their needs addressed, spiritual needs addressed by a physician directly or by referral to a pastor. Do we meet this need? Nope. The best we ever did, there's four national data sets in the U.S. The oldest is in 1994. And one in five patients, only one in five patients, said that any healthcare professional in their entire life had ever asked them about their spiritual beliefs. Fast forward to 1999, it dropped to 15%. Forward to 2002, it dropped to 10%. And our most recent data, which is now about, what, nine years old or so, 2004, 10 years old, it's dropped to 9%. We're not doing it. Our professions aren't doing it. So patients desire it. Enhances the, secondly, it enhances the health professional patient relationship. So I love this article from Dale Matthews when he was a research internist at Georgetown. Did a review of the literature of the relationship between physical, emotional health and spiritual health. He said, the, and this is their abstract, their, kind of their conclusion. The empirical literature regarding the relationship between religious factors, both intrinsic and extrinsic factors, and physical and mental health status was reviewed. A large proportion of published empirical data, large proportion meaning Depending on the review, 90 to 95% of the data looking at physical, emotional health relationship to spiritual health, and 85 to 90% of the literature looking at physical health to spiritual health relationship, <clears throat> suggests that religious commitment plays a beneficial role in three areas, preventing mental physical illness, improving how people cope with it, and facilitating recovery from illness. This is the least strong of the associations, preventive uh, uh, care. Improving how people cope is by far the largest association. People depend upon their spirituality when they're recovering, when they're coping with. And then recovery. In fact, every study in the surgical literature looking at depth of spiritual belief and comparing that to surgical outcomes shows an improvement. It doesn't matter if you look at GYN oncology or cardiovascular surgery. Even orthopedists have looked at this. 
So Dale Matthews concludes the available data suggests that practitioners who make several small changes, not big changes, this only requires seconds of your time, but several small changes in how patients' religious commitments are broached, which a spiritual history does, may enhance healthcare outcomes. And now the most recent data that we have in the literature from an article two years ago in American Family Physician says this, assessing and integrating patient spirituality into the healthcare encounter can build trust and rapport. It broadens the physician-patient relationship, increases its effectiveness. It's kind of like anybody ought, ought to do this. And maybe one of the reasons that I'm being asked in secular environments to talk to med schools and to <clears throat> um, nursing schools and to health systems about doing spiritual history. The main reason they ask is this, though, because spiritual history is now considered quality patient care and affects payment. Think that gets the, in, <laughs> the, the uh, interest of your medical centers? I think so. So starting back in 1989 and all the way through the 90s, Health care organization after health care organization espoused the fact that spirituality and religiousness does impact emotional and physical health and should be broached in the health care relationship. But then, the, uh, and, and Koenig wrote uh, in an article about four years ago, he said, at that point, about 90% of medical schools and many nursing schools in the U.S., teach about religion and spirituality to, to various degrees. Also, it's beginning in Brazil and the United Kingdom. So spirituality and health is increasingly being addressed in medical and nursing training. But then the Joint Commission, which whose certification, uh, Medicaid and Medicare to pay, uh, payment to health care associations, whether it's hospitals or practices, is dependent upon Joint Commission accreditation. Here's what they say. Spiritual assessment should, at a minimum, determine the patient's denomination beliefs and what spiritual practices are important to them. They say a spiritual history should be taken on every admission, behavioral and physical, ER, as well as outpatient mental health, rest homes, nursing homes, um, that sort of thing. So why would they require this, and why is everybody jumping on this bandwagon? The commission says this information would assist in determining the impact of spirituality, if any, if any, on the care services being provided, and will identify if any further assessment is needed. So Koenig, the fellow from Duke, says, what would I recommend in terms of addressing spiritual issues in clinical care? First and foremost, health professionals should take a brief, 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 brief spiritual history. Not the admitting clerk. Health professionals should take it. This should be done for all new patients on their first evaluation, especially if they have serious or chronic illnesses and when a patient is admitted to a hospital, nursing home, home health agency, or other health care setting. It is the health professional, not the chaplain, who's responsible for doing this two-minute evaluation. He's an academician, so he does things slowly. I'm going to show you how to do it quickly because you're concerned about it. Simply recording the patient's religious denomination, whether they want to see a chaplain, the procedure in most hospitals is not taking a spiritual history. And I want to center here just for a second. A spiritual history can tell you if your believers, and I'm not talking about Christians, but your religious believers you care for are experiencing religious struggle. And the first of several studies that kind of awakened me to this issue was published by um, Parjament and Koenig. 
uh, a number of years ago. This particular longitudinal study was done from 19 to ni- 1996 to 1997. It compared religious struggle to physical and mental health measures and outcomes. And the key uh, finding was they were looking at mortality two years after discharge from the hospital. Did religious struggle in the hospital make a difference? So there were about 2,600 patients in this study, 596 of which believed one of several delusions. And they concentrated on those 596. They were folks aged 55 years or older. They were in the med surge and the behavioral units at, <coughs> at Duke University. It was a multivariate study, so they controlled for a whole bunch of variables, such as demographics, physical and mental health, uh, measures of of illness. No difference between the groups who believed and didn't believe these things I'm going to show you, so that both the control group and the intervention group, if you would, were essentially the same groups. But those with highest religious struggle scores had 6% greater mortality over the next two years. And you say, ah, 6%. That's not such a big deal until you isolated four of those beliefs, and now the mortality went to 19 to 28% higher. If you were going to release someone from your care and you knew there was a correctable factor that predicted up to one-third increased risk of death in the next two years, do you think you might want to know it? I think you probably might be, be interested. So just to distill this literature down, because I'm very simple. I talk about the PAL factors. There's four uh, of the strongest predictors of increased mortality. I used to just use PAL until one of the residents said, uh, Dr. Lerman, we know you come from a small city. But P-A-L. It's three factors, not four. So I changed the slide for you. <clears throat> so four factors. The P is punished by God or punished by the devil. A is abandoned. L is love. Punished, abandoned, Love. We're going to come back to that in a second. So people who felt punished by God for their lack of devotion or who felt punished by God because of sin. In other words, I, I was around him with the residents last time I was in the hospital. I had a, a young guy <clears throat> come from the country, shortness of breath, dysphagia on exertion, had bilateral pleural effusions, tapped him, lung cancer. Had to have ch- chest tubes because he was reaccumulating fluid. And on doing this new spiritual history I'm going to show you, he said, oh, yeah, I know why I've got this cancer. It was because of, and he started naming off sins, because of this and this and this and that and this and this and on that and this and this and that. And and he just kept going. Almost made me believe him. But he felt God was punishing him. And that's why he had his disease, 16% increased risk. Or if you feel you're punished by the devil, the, the devil made this happen. 19% increased risk of mortality over the next two years. The A is abandoned. Has God abandoned me here? Have, have I asked him to heal me, and he, and he didn't. He either doesn't have the power, he doesn't care, or he's left me alone. And when I round in Tulsa with the residents, sort of a charismatic epicenter of the universe, where there's a great deal of theological teaching that if you pray a particular way, God will heal you. And if he doesn't, it's either because you don't have enough faith, don't have the right faith, or you have unconfessed sin. And then they come into the hospital and we see them. So this is the most common thing that I see when I round with the residents. God abandoned me or didn't heal me when I ask. And the L is, if God really loved me, 
if God really loved my baby, if God really loved the world, we wouldn't be seeing <clears throat> these things. 22% increased risk. By the way, it was the abandonment that gave the highest mortality. 28% mortality. This was the first study showing that religious variables increase the risk of mortality. Men and women who experience religious struggle are at increased risk for death. And you won't know if you don't ask. Such patients may, without their doctor's encouragement, refuse to speak with clergy. Why? Because clergy represents God, and they're angry with God. And so a nurse, or a physician, or a lab tech, or a dental hygienist can help connect them back to support. So what spiritual assessments can we use? I've got about 20 minutes left. So the most recent one discussed in the medical literature came out about two years ago. It's called the Open Invite. It was an American family physician. By the way, all these citations are in the handout. If you're listening by by tape or, or CD, you can get that at the Global Health Missions website. Does that is Global Missions Health or Global Health Missions Conference website? Okay. <clears throat> so open is to open the door to conversation. This is part of a spiritual his- excuse me, part of a social history. So, so if you're asking about smoking and alcohol and work and that that sort of thing, um, <clears throat> so it just fits right into a social history, very simple and very easily. So may I ask about your faith background, or do you have a spiritual or faith preference you'd like me to know about? Yeah, kind of a benign question. And then invite, the second part is, invite the patient to discuss any spiritual needs that they might have with you. Now, we started doing this. We started doing spiritual interventions in our practice in about 1988. And the way it started was Mr. Evangelical, you know, in the practice, was having coffee with one of uh, my more orthodox colleagues. And... um, and we were in the morning, we were having coffee. And so John, my practice partner, who I worked with for 16 years, John said, hey, don't you people <laughs> believe in sharing your faith? And I thought, that's interesting. So well, yes, we people do believe in sharing our faith. And he said, well, so do we people. But how come you and I don't bring our faith to work with us? And it was so convicting. It was just... An enlightening experience. It was just like a bolt of lightning. And we began to ask the question, how do we bring our faith to work with us? And that led to spiritual interventions in our practice, like spiritual history, praying with patients, praying for patients, faith flags, faith stories, learning to share a testimony, learning to share the gospel when indicated and when appropriate. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, when asked, right? Peter says, be prepared always to make... Uh, a defense, an apology, a defense of the faith that lies within you when asked, yet with gentleness. So we began to bring these spiritual um, interventions into our practice, which later led to the Sailing Solution course and has now led to the Grace Prescriptions course. But when we started doing spiritual histories, we decided not to have our uh, nurses do the spiritual histories. And the reason we decided that was because we knew these were crazy questions. And we thought people were going to like really freak out about it. And we wanted to be able to say, oh, well, don't be concerned because the medical literature shows that, you know, we had this little answer. But nobody raised an eyebrow. It was like, no, no, I mean, nobody, not one person. And so I was meeting with my mentors, a guy named Bill Judge. Bill, the farmer in Kissimmee, Florida, and has been my mentor for 25 years, since 85, almost. Anyway, 
<clears throat> so I was telling Bill, I said, you know, I've been doing spiritual history and nobody wrinkles an eyebrow. He said, well, did you expect them to? And I said, I really did. And he said, why? I said, well, because these are like really strange questions. And he said, well, you guys asked lots of really strange questions anyway. <laughs> so I got real defensive. And I said, yeah, like what? And he said, well, like, um, last time I came to your office was a pre- for a preventive medicine visit. He's 60 at that time and had been married for 40 years to Jane. And he said, Leticia, your nurse, asked me how many sexual partners I had had in the previous year. That was a really strange question. <laughs> he said, but most of all, I couldn't figure out if it was <clears throat> zero or one. So, <clears throat> so the open invite questionnaire. And so here's some of the invite questions. And I'm not suggesting you memorize these. I'm suggesting you just go through these assessments and decide what fits your temperament and your personality and your practice where God has called you now. Which of these would kind of fit? And then begin experimenting with them. And so do you feel that your spiritual health is affecting your physical health? Does your spirituality impact your health decisions? Is there a way for you would like, like me to account for your spirituality in your care? How can we provide... Uh, spiritual support. Are there resources in your faith community that you would like us to help mobilize, especially important in hospitalized patients? Because in our country, HIPAA prevents the old practice when someone would be admitted to the hospital. The hospital would contact the faith community from which the patient came. They'd call the pastor, the priest, or the rabbi, or the monk. They can't do that anymore. And what I'm finding is if I ask, they want their faith community contact, and we can help uh, facilitate that. There's a variety of spiritual assessments that are in the handout. I'm not going to go through them. All of them have between three and four questions. All of them are published in the literature, and you can go through them and and look at the questions, decide if any of them are appropriate. I just want to go through two very quickly. Like I told you, I'm I'm simple. I come from a little town. I, I see lots of patients. I have to work very quickly. So even four questions was a stretch for me. So I had to go with Three questions. They were the God questions that were published in the Sailing Solution in 2000. So the God questions you ask about G is for God, O is about others, D is do. And so the God questions, may I ask about your faith background? Do you have a spiritual faith or preference? I'm just suggesting some questions. Is God, faith, spirituality, religion something that's in, that is or ever was important to you or not. It's either going to be positive or it's going to be negative. It's like, do you use tobacco products? Yep, I do. Then you might ask a little bit more about it. Never have, never would. Never would date anyone who thought about it. Okay, I've got some information. Because with a history, we're simply looking for health risk factors. We don't act on all of them. We prioritize them. But but we're looking to see, is there anything here? It's one of the ways that... I'm able to ask the question of each patient I see, what's God doing in your life, and how can I join him there? The O is others. Do you now, or have you ever ever met with others in religious or spiritual community? Or some of you in more conservative communities in the Bible Belt might say, do you go to church, <laughs> you know, type thing. And if so, how often? It's like, yeah, do you use tobacco products? Yep. Yeah. How much? I don't know, four, five, six packs a day. Kind of a different answer than, well, Christmas. Same thing with your faith community. 
Yeah, well, I go to church all the time. How often? Every Christmas. She drags me. A little bit different answer than the person says, yep, I go every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, Tuesday night for visitation, and Wednesday night. Because if you love God, you go Sunday morning. If you love your pastor, you go Sunday morning and Sunday evening. But if you love Jesus, you go Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Tuesday visitation, and Wednesday. <coughs> and the D is D is do. What can I do? Can I pray for you? Can I pray with you? Are there any resources you need? Do I do? It? Do I need to contact a pastor, priest, or a rabbi? We had a lady who came into the emergency room with acute cholecystitis. <clears throat> got a. a, a um, Surgical consultation, they were going to take her to the OR that night. She had an obstructed common dock. And in her spiritual history, she was going to the new little Buddhist temple there in Kissimmee. And when the <clears throat> Buddhist temple kind of started, which really got the cowboys all upset. They just, the cowboys at Joni's Cafe could not believe there was a Buddhist temple right across the street. Nor could they believe that the pastoral professionals there were three little monks. I mean, little tiny women wearing brown cassocks. And, but anyway, John and I had gone to the, <clears throat> to the monks to meet with them to say, would you be willing to be spiritual consultants of ours? Now, are we universalists? No. But if they had adherents who we were taking care of, we wanted to be able to provide past the pastoral support they needed, if they needed it, so that we loved all people in all ways, in all situations, that we might win some for Christ. And so they had given us their contact information, and we co- I contacted one of the monks that night. And I remember standing in the pre-op area before we went into the OR. And, and in family medicine, we, you know, we do surgery and we do a B, and so we're used to the fetal monitors. So when the heart rate monitors beep, and you, you know, you know if it's 120, 140, 160, 180. And so she's tacking along at about 120. And I'm not really thinking about it, but it's, her heart rate's 120, and I'm doing, making some notes. And in walks her little monk into the pre-op area. And I said hi to the, to the lady, and she walked over to my patient, and they held hands, and they started talking, and I don't even know what they said, but what I do remember was that heart rate going, going down. Surgeons, is it better to take someone to the OR with a heart rate of 120 or 80? Well, you're going to cut either way. (laughs) So what can I do to assist you, to meet you where you're at in your spiritual journey, to help you take the next step, step, moving forward. And it was approximately three years later that that Buddhist who was searching found Jesus. But I left out the most critical item in spiritual history. I've been teaching spiritual history since um, the mid-90s, and I completely ignored this issue of religious struggle. I've just completely ignored it. What about it? And so I want to give you a brand new spiritual history. It's not just God, but is the Lord your pal? Please, I'm not talking about the theology of is Jesus your pal? And yes, he's your friend, but it's not a theological statement. I'm just looking to a way to remember stuff, because that's what I, what I need. So is the Lord your pal? So the Lord pal questions, it's this, like, Basic spirituality 101 is the God questions. But those of you who are in graduate school, the Lord questions. 25% more work. It'll add 10 seconds to your day. So the L is Lord, the O is others, the D is do. Does that kind of look familiar? Except when I teach in the secular environment, 
we do the pod questions because it's higher power. Others and but anyway, <clears throat> so Lord, Lord, other God, others and do right, Lord, others do. But we've added this religious struggle or relationship one now. So here's how it works: the L and the Lord questions are same as the G questions in the God questionnaire. So may I ask your faith background? Do you have a spiritual faith preference? Is God's spirituality, religion, and prayer important to you? Or not the O same as the O in the God questions. Do you now have you ever met with others in religious or spiritual community? If so, how often do you meet? How important is this to you? And then the religious struggle questions. And there's two ways you can go here. And I can't tell you how much fun it's been to practice the Lord is my pal questions, at least for me. So from L and O, the L L L is. Um, would you mind if I ask you a couple of questions about your faith preference? Nah. Is God, faith, prayer, of the Bible important? You had a big old trucker named Bob in. Great big old guy. Looked like a Green Bay Packer tackle. And uh, so is God, faith, prayer, Bible something that's important to you or not? He goes, no. Now, I didn't have time at that moment to explore that. But there's something. You ask somebody, do you smoke? And they go, no. And you ask someone, do you smoke? And they go, No. That's a different answer. Not sure why, but it's kind of a... So he said, no. And, and so then asked Bob, well, is meeting with others in a faith community something that ever has been important here or is now? And then it was expletive, expletive no. So am I going to ask Bob about religious struggle? <laughs> Don't think so. But if I ask his wife, Nina Sue, is God, faith, Bible, or prayer something important to you? She said, yeah, I, I've gone to church ever since I was a little girl. I don't even remember when I first met Jesus. But I don't know, I've never known a day without him. It, for the oh, is, is meeting with others something that's important to you? Yeah, I've never not gone. Completely different answer. Now, who is the religious believer of the two? It's nine is six. So in the case of someone who you sense is or was religious, and I'm not talking Christian, I'm just talking religion. They may be religious in other religious traditions. But if they're a believer, then it's appropriate to explore religious struggles. And the acrostic is the Lord, your pal. And it's simply the pal questions. Do you believe God or the devil is punishing you for something? The A is, I should have asked you, the A is abandonment. Do you think God's abandoned you? Have you asked God to heal you and, and he hasn't? And the L is love, you know? Have you questioned God's love for you? And if you get a yes in here, you've got a 16 to 28% increase in mortality no matter what you do. And so that's worthy either of a consult, referral, or some counseling. It doesn't have to be that moment. But you've, you've raised a significant risk factor that, that you can and should <clears throat> deal with. So if you, since the patient is or was religious, explore religious struggles with the, the cross against the Lord, your pal. But what if you sense the patient's not religious, like Big Bob? Not religious. This is an opportunity for relationship. It's an opportunity for you to say, well, I'm not going to ask, is the Lord your pal? Since you're not a religious believer, I want you to know that the Lord Yahweh, the God creator of the universe, who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, 
we're not saying this in the patient's, but, you know, I want you to know that this Lord is my best friend. He's my Savior. The Lord is my pal. And, and here's kind of how I've, I've distilled this in practice. What are the two things you don't ask about except during the midterm elections? Politics and religion. So just to recognize, hey, thanks for your honesty. This is, this is tough stuff to talk about. I appreciate you sharing that. Bob, thanks. I appreciate you sharing that. It's tough stuff to talk about. But I want you to understand something. That, and I can say this now from my experience. From those of you who are younger, you'll be able to say, well, you know, the medical studies show or the dental studies show or the nursing studies show that when people face illness or pregnancy or childbirth or dental pain, when people face medical and dental distress, they begin to think eternal thoughts. It's invariable. It happens all the time. And if you find yourself thinking any of these things, I just want you to know I'm open to talk to you about that. And boom, I'm on to the next thing. It's like the guy that's smoking four packs a day. I don't have to tell him or her that it's bad for their health. They know that. But I can say, hey, if you ever want to stop, let me know. We've got some tools that can help you out. Religion is not important to you. I get that. But if it ever is, let me know. I'll be happy to, to talk to you. And even a brief testimony. So in the case of Bob, I said, I know that faith is something that's not important to you. I get that. But I want you to know something. That my my most favorite relationship in the world after that with my wife, Barb. We've been happily married 22 years. We've been married 40. But (laughs) after my relationship with Barb, it's my personal relationship with God. And so, and then what I, I said to him that day was, one of the things I do because of that relationship is talk to him every day about my patience. We believers call that prayer. Would it be okay if I prayed for you in my daily prayer? And he, he kind of had a surly, snarly look. And, yeah, I guess I'd be all right. Then he said, do you charge for it? <laughs> <laughs> and the do's, the same as the God questions, the L-O-R-D. So God, faith, prayer, something is important to you is the L. The O, are you in community with others? The R is... Religious struggle for believers are relationship, a little testimony for non-believers. And then the D questions is the same as the D questions with God. What can I do to assist you in incorporating your faith? Is there anything I can do to encourage your faith? May I pray with you or for, or for you? Actually ended up, uh, during Bob's uh, physical, found a uh, large, hard, multi-lobulated nodule in the left lobe of the prostate. Ended up doing a transrectal biopsy and had a glisten 7 adenocarcinoma of the prostate. <clears throat> so after considering options, he chose to have a nerve-sparing prostatectomy. And so uh, I'm a family doc, but we operate, we assist with our patients. So the day of surgery, walked into the <clears throat> pre-op area, greeted his wife, Ninesu, greeted him, asked if he had any questions or concerns, and he didn't. And then I did what I've done with every pre-op patient in my entire career, but I almost didn't with Bob. I said, uh, <clears throat> you know, one of the things I do before I go into the OR is I pray with my patients. Would that be okay? And I almost didn't with Bob. And he said, he thought a second, and he said, that'd be all right. That'd be all right. <clears throat> so I was holding the gurney, which is a good thing, because 
the rail of the garden because it really, I, I just, that shocked me. I just didn't predict that he would do that. So I began to pray for him. And given the urologist that he chose to do, his surgery prayer was very appropriate. But, <clears throat> but as I began to pray, I shouldn't have said that. But So I began to pray. His big old truck driver hand came up and, and rested across both my hands and grabbed them. And um, when I finished praying, he didn't let go. And um, I couldn't leave. <laughs> but I looked at him, and he had big tears running down his cheeks. And he took his free hand, and he wiped his tears, and he said, uh, I was just quiet for a second. He said, Doc, he said, you're not going to tell anybody, are you? And I said, well, what, that you, um, that you cried or, or that we prayed? And he said, no, that we held hands. <laughs> I I tell you that with his permission, um, it was several months later that he came to faith in Christ. I wasn't part of that final process, but God allowed me to be part of the initial process. Bob ended up leading our Promise Keepers group there in Kissimmee and ended up discipling scores of men before he he passed away. So the do do questions. Word of caution, don't ignore, but don't be pushy. Professional problems can occur when well-meaning, we could say health professionals, faith push a patient opposed to discussing religion. However, rather than ignoring faith completely with, with patients, which many of you are doing, right? It, right? Confess it. Most of whom would want to discuss it. Physicians might ask a question to discern who would be willing to pursue it and who would rather not. So assessing and integrating patient spirituality into healthcare environment, builds trust, rapport, broadens your relationship with the patient, increases its effectiveness. I'll just finish real quickly with a few quotes. The first from Sir William Osler, his first editorial in the British Medical Journal after he joined the staff at Johns Hopkins, left London and came over to the U.S. His editorial was called The Faith That Heals. He said, nothing in life is more wonderful than faith. The one great moving force, which we can neither weigh in the balance nor test in the crucible, Mysterious, indefinable, known only by its effects, faith pours out an unfailing stream of energy while abating neither jot nor tittle of its potent. A spiritual history cracks open a jar of clay that allows the Holy Spirit's light to come out on the patients that you care for. George Crowell, who was president of the American Cancer Society, uh, his grandfather was the founder of the Cleveland Clinic, and he was the head cancer surgeon at Cleveland Clinic, and a book called Cancer and Sense wrote, No physician, sleepless and worried about a patient, can return to the hospital in the midnight hours without feeling the importance of his faith. No physician entering the hospital in these quiet hours can help feeling that the medical institution of which he is part is in essence religious, that it is built on trust. No physician can fail to be proud that he is part of his patient's faith. And a spiritual history allows you to either enter into that faith or perhaps be a spark to the start of that faith. Art Kornhaber, at at the time uh, at Harvard, in in an interview in Newsweek, said to exclude God from a medical consultation is a form of malpractice. Spirituality is wonder, joy, and shouldn't be left in the clinical closet. And one of the lead academicians of our current day, an extremely humble fellow, wrote in the Annals of Behavioral Medicine, the current evidence would encourage interested physicians, healthcare providers, and systems to learn to assess their patients' spiritual health. 
and then, based upon that spiritual history, to provide indicated and desired spiritual intervention. Clinicians should not, without compelling data, not the opinion of one-sided, non-evidence-based eccentrics, but based upon data, without data to the contrary, we shouldn't deprive our patients of the spiritual support and comfort upon which their hope, health, and well-being may hinge. We're running late, so I'll, I'll shut down to let you have time to leave, but I'll be glad to stay. But can I pray for you real quick? So I, I know you wouldn't be here if you didn't want to bring your Savior to work with you. So let me pray for you. So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who know you and love you and who desire to serve you, that you will awaken in them, enlighten them as you did me, about how they might bring their faith to work. Father, given their temperament, their personalities, their training, the particular situation, guide them, lead them, give them knowledge into how they can further crack themselves as vessels of clay and allow your Holy Spirit to pour out through them. For the fruit that you will bear in them and through them this next year, I thank you now in faith and in Jesus' name. Amen.